Okay, hello everyone. Uh, my name is Noam Yuchtman. Um, ladies and gentlemen, I welcome you all to the LSE uh, for this online event. Um, I'm a professor of managerial economics and strategy in the management department here at the LSE. Um, and it's an honor and a pleasure to welcome and introduce Rohini Pandey today. Uh, Rohini is the Henry J. Hines II Professor of Economics at Yale. She's Director of Yale's Economic Growth Center. She's a co-editor of American Economic Review Insights. Quite simply, she's among our school's most distinguished alumni. Um, to place Rohini's important work in, in context, I think many of you in the audience are aware of an influential body of research in development economics recognized recently in the awarding of the 2019 Nobel Prize to Abhijit Banerjee, Esther Duflo, and Michael Kremer. This research used field experiments to rigorously answer the question of which poverty alleviation policies work. As great research does, that body of work opened up another equally important research question at the intersection of economic development and political economy. Which countries implement policies that work to reduce poverty? Which ones don't and why don't they? What are the implications of political economy for policy design? Rohini's ongoing research addresses these enormous questions. Rohini's lecture today will discuss the implications of unequal power structures and low state capacity for the design of effective anti-poverty programs. I, and I'm sure our entire audience, um, are looking forward to hearing Rohini's insights. Before handing it over to Rohini, a couple administrative items. For those Twitter users in the audience, the hashtag for today's event is hashtag LSECoesPhillips. I want to let you know that this online event is being recorded, and we hope it will be made available as a podcast, subject to there being no technical difficulties. As usual, there will be a chance for the audience to put questions uh, to our speaker. Um, to submit your questions, please use the Q&A feature at the bottom of your screen. Questions will be submitted to me, and I'll pass those on to Rohini um, as, as time allows. Please let us know your name and affiliation. And I just want to say that it's we're particularly excited to have questions from our students, alumni, and any incoming students. So please let us know uh, your affiliation. For now, uh, I'm just delighted to have uh, a chance to hand the, the uh, screen over to, to Rohini. Um, so it's all yours. Thanks, Rohini, very much for coming. Great. Let me just share my screen so you can see that. Okay, well, thank you very much for the invitation. It's uh, great to be uh, in some ways back at LSE. Um, I wish I could have been in there in person, but, you know, LSE is certainly um, a place where I had most of my education and coming to as an economist interested in issues of political economy. So I'm delighted to be back and being able to share some of my current thinking on this topic. So given that this is LSE, I thought it may be good to start with sort of three quotes from LSE alumni, which I think set the stage for where I want to go in this talk. And these are three ways in which I think about our thinking on power as having evolved over the last few decades. So let me start with um, Arthur Lewis. So this is a quote from Arthur Lewis in 1954, where he says that the fact that the wage level in the capitalist sector depends upon earnings in the subsistence sector is of immense political importance. Since it's the effect is that capitalists have a direct interest in holding down the productivity of the subsistence workers. 
Thus, the owners of plantations, if they're influential in government, are often found engaged in turning the peasants off their land. And I can't think of a better way of describing how power relationships actually influence the transaction costs that we see occur when, say, rich and poor try to engage in exchanges that in a world without politics or without power, we may think should happen instantaneously. The LSA alumni who's perhaps the most influential for helping us think about such exchanges is, of course, Ronald Coase, after whom this lecture is named. But even Coase, in his Nobel Prize lecture in 1991, recognized the importance that governments may play. He wrote, of course, it does not imply when transaction costs are positive that government actions such as regulation or taxation could not produce a better result than relying on negotiations between individuals. Whether this could have be so is discovered not by studying imaginary governments, but what real governments actually do. My conclusion, let us study the world of positive transaction costs. And this is very much where I want to go today is to really think about what it is that real governments do and what does that mean for development policy. And finally, along those lines, let me conclude with um, a quote from um, Darren Asimoglu, who, whose paper itself was titled, Why Don't We Have a Political Coast Theorem? And he wrote that the political coast theorem presumes political and economic trades can be made between various individuals. Typically contracts and, extract and explicit promises are enforced by the state. Allocation of political power thus creates an inherent commitment problem. So self-interested members who make up a state may choose not to enforce a contract simply because it will take rents away from them. So let me now turn to why I think these ideas are central today as we think about development policy. It wouldn't be controversial to start by saying that, you know, a central goal of development really is to think about how do we get people out of poverty, but importantly, how do we keep them out of poverty? Historically, in thinking about this, the development community has relied on two levers. Um, how can we maximize economic growth and see that trickle down or directly benefit poor individuals? And then how should we think about the intentional redistribution of resources, either within countries or across countries in order to provide the poor the resources they need? Especially in thinking about the second point, the 1990s was an influential period uh, with movements such as Jubilee 2000, where there was strong international advocacy for untied funds for poor countries and debt cancellation. But soon on the heels of this came a significant backlash uh, for instance, captured by Billy Sterley's work, which was linked to concerns of corruption, the idea that governments may not actually transfer the resources to the poor. And I think it's very much a response in part to this view that we saw the rise, as Noah mentioned, of this experimental welfare-oriented research, which sought to quantify the problem costs and benefits in development policies in order to ask, can we have value for money metrics so we can identify what actually works to get the poor the resources they need. And perhaps the, the, these are the programs that should be directly invested in and, and, and measured. Now, one way to think about it is that what economists tried to provide at this point was quite a technocratic fix. And in doing so, it also supported a technocratic policy narrative. And so the narrative would go something like, well, depends on what your goals are, but different actors, they could be aid agencies, they could be philanthropy, the domestic state or NGOs, can, can announce its goal, look at the evidence, 
And then based on value for money metrics, choose their preferred best buy. So if you want to do education for girls, identify what the best buy for your country is. This was also consistent with this idea that as countries get richer, they can graduate out of aid and soon enter the development marketplace directly as buyers where they then choose what to buy. The problem with this technocratic fix is it is also possibly going to lead us down a route of mission creep. You can move quite fast from asking um, what is central to development policy, what's the best buy in the interest of the poor citizens of a recipient country to asking what's the best buy for the citizens or the government of the aid providing country. And one example of such mission creep we see in the British FCDO's uh, recent decision to reorient their uh, foreign aid spending. So this is from Minister Raab's letter on the ODA budget cut. Programs will be judged against how well they fit with UK strategic objectives, the evidence of the impact achieved, and whether they are value of money. And so to return back to cause, I think one way you could think about this, that in a world where the poor lack property rights over aid, it's very unclear whether you're going to end up in this technocratic world with donor government actions that seek to benefit the poor in the world. And this really is the starting point of where I want to argue development policy now needs to go and what we need to think about. Ultimately, we often measure poverty as a lack of resources, but being poor is about much more than lacking money and escaping it sustainably is going to require more than cash. What it's going to require is institutions that give the poor to demand and access resources that insulate them from the shocks and that don't actively hold them back. One institution that aims to do so and one that I'll come back to repeatedly talk is that of representative democracy. But very often democracy doesn't work for the poor. And I think the task for us at hand is to really try to think about how can we make the, the democracy work for the poor so that they have the power to demand what they need. And in doing so, I think we also have to recognize that the practicalities of development policy ultimately cannot be delinked from the moral, political and economic imperatives that the domestic state and international agencies face, both in terms of providing the poor the institutions they want and then also in terms of justifying support for programs in terms of what citizens and donors in donor countries want. So what I want to do in today's talk is I want to start by with some pictures. I want to talk about why we have learned that we need to go beyond these two levers of promoting growth and value for money aid projects. I then want to turn, return back to this concept of institutional poverty, talk about why I think this is central to what makes it hard for the poor to stay out of poverty very often, and then talk about engagement with the democratic state. Very often when we bring politics into question development policy, um, people think the response is going to be, we should just not do aid anymore. I want to actually argue the opposite, that we now are beginning to see a, very, a robust body of evidence building very often on insights offered by the earlier experimental literature that tells us ways in which democratic reform can actually be used to create states that are accountable to their citizens. So let me start with some pictures. Let me start by talking about just the history of what we see. So I think the, perhaps the central fact of development has been the amazing success 
of uh, growth in pulling millions out of poverty, especially in East Asia and South Asia. So what this graph reminds us of is that in 1981, over 40% of the world's population lived on less than $1.90 a day. And by 2015, this number was down to uh, roughly 10%. I've shown here the orange line for South Asia, but if you looked at East Asia, you would see an even more dramatic decline. Of course, what the lighter uh, shaded lines remind us of is that COVID is changing this world. 2020 is going to see the first rise in global poverty numbers across the globe. And much of that is linked to um, the, the, the impacts of COVID. Alongside this decline in poverty, we, have, we however did also see rising inequality. So this is just graphing for three countries, for India, China, and Brazil. Um, the share of income that goes to the top 1%, so that's the solid line. And in dotted lines, the share of income that goes to the bottom 50%. So Brazil is a country that hasn't seen a lot of change in its inequality. By some measures, it's also fallen, but it remains a very unequal country. But what's striking is when you look at a country like India, you see that the top 1% just in barely three decades has gone from having less than 10% of the economy's income to over 20%. This is a dramatic increase in inequality in these countries. And this had important implications for the evolution of poverty. We saw that on aggregate, there was a significant decline in the world's poor. But there's also been a change in where they live. So if you look here, and if you look at 1987, which is the bar on the left, um, the world's poor largely lived in poor countries. You know, a large fraction lived in China, then India, then Indonesia, and so on. If you fast forward to 2015, the good news, of course, is that the height of the bar has reduced a lot. So a lot of people have escaped poverty. The other good news is that countries like India, Nigeria, Bangladesh have become uh, lower middle income countries. And China, in fact, doesn't show up here because it's it's become even richer. However, um, they haven't lost the relatively larger share of the poor. And so today, the majority of the world's poor now don't live in poor countries, but they live in populous, lower middle income countries. Now, why does that matter? One reason that matters a lot is it tells us that something isn't working about growth in terms of raising all the boats in a country. It also tells us something about what might be happening with aid. This is a famous graph from um, the Brookings Institution that reminded us that as numbers on aid rose over time, and also we saw a decline in the world, the, the poor in the world, you actually see after 2006 that if you just ask how many dollars will it take to get every poor person a dollar ninety a day, assuming there are zero transaction costs for doing so, uh, well then the aid budget has exceeded the poverty shortfall since 2006. But we know that the world's poor are still with us. Over 700 million uh, are below the poverty line. And an important reason for that is that aid continues to go to poor countries, not to poor people. And this, again, is a reminder of um, the political power that often operates at the level of states, not individuals. So you can see that some of the large, populous, low-income countries like Nigeria, India, Indonesia, essentially get close to no aid. And so simply thinking that aid is actually going to go where poor people is, is not what we're seeing in the data. 
So what does poverty look like in these high poverty middle income countries? A fact that I always find very stark is to think about the Indian state of Bihar. There's been a lot of discussion of India having become a lower middle income country. But if we just took the state of Bihar and considered it as a country, it would rank as the world's most populous low income country. And it would also be considered a politically fragile state. And I think that is a very clear depiction of the kind of scarcity you see in the midst of a relative affluence in a country like India. I think you can see similar statistics if you look at Nigeria, Indonesia, and Kenya, rising regional inequality. And within many of these countries, we continue to see that as growth occurs, social and economic disadvantage very often continue to remain strongly correlated. This is from a UN uh, World Social Report for 2020 um, for the set of countries for whom the sur household surveys were detailed enough for, to measure ethnic minorities. We use a broader measure of poverty than the $1.90 metric, but in countries across the world, from Mongolia to Nigeria to Vietnam, typically the ethnic minorities in these countries have significantly higher rates of poverty than, than the majority group. Similarly, this correlation, unfortunately, sometimes strengthens with growth. So this is just some set of tabulations that I did using the National Sample Survey in India. If you look from 1987 to 2011, the red bar is the Hindu uh, middle and upper castes. For this group, you see a significant decline in uh, poverty rates. The proportion of um, th that group that's, in that's poor falls from 50% to around 40%. However, if you look at lower caste, so you look at Muslims, you see, if anything, the opposite trend. Um, so you, you see increasing um, concentration of poverty among already disadvantaged groups. And this need not even happen at the just at the level of groups. It can even happen within households. So this is another graph that I find very striking is uh, if you look at growth in India across time and you just look at the GDP, we know we've seen this rise and this dramatic rise after the early 1990s. But then if you plot Sorry, if you plot female labor force participation in India, you actually see the opposite trend that as the country is getting richer, women are dropping out of the labor force. And this cannot be explained by the simple households are getting richer and women don't want to work. Um, in the data, you also see that if you just provided jobs to all the women who state that they don't have a job but would like to work, you would double female labor force participation. And then finally, of course, climate breakdown suggests that increasingly traditional growth is not going to give us poverty gains. All the evidence we have suggests that climate change is regressive in its impact. And it's very unclear what the term of green growth actually is going to translate into in the low in low income countries. They're not going to, very often you think of worst case projections and you think, oh, that's not going to happen. But unfortunately, when it comes to climate breakdowns in every case, we see the worst case occurring more often. And so the World Bank projections suggest that over 100 million will be in extreme poverty by 2030, and roughly half of them will come from South Asian high-poverty uh, middle-income countries. And all of these vulnerabilities are being amplified by COVID-19. Um, estimates suggest that 80% of the new poor, around 100, I think estimates suggest between 100 and 150 million will fall back into poverty will come from these high poverty middle income countries with the majority concentrated in India. Women will make up a majority of the losses. 
And we also know environmental injustice uh, persists through COVID-19 with those who are subject to uh, more respiratory harm are also going to suffer worse from COVID-19. And in the midst of all of this, we also see geopolitics are playing out. Domestic concerns are increasingly being portrayed as pressing in richer countries. So the FCDO budget, for instance, when it was cut last week uh, from 07 to 0.5%, COVID-related concerns were placed as an important reason for it. So having, having um, portrayed perhaps a little bit of a picture of doom and gloom, let me now turn to arguing why we can actually think about doing something about this. So I want to develop my argument in, I think, five steps. I want to start by talking about what are the pitfalls of avoiding the domestic state machinery and talk about how looking at the trajectory of aid budgets and how they evolved, we can see why this is not where we want to go. I want to return to um, what Noam had already mentioned at the start, some of the important experimental literature on uh, plumbing and talk about how we have important lessons that we have learned from it, but that we need to go beyond this if we want to sustainably affect poverty. And then I want to turn to the concept of institutional poverty, which I think is central for thinking about what needs doing, and then talk about how democratic reforms may provide us a way of addressing this. And then I want to end by, I think, taking head on this sort of catch-22 of democratic reform, this concern that, well, you can talk about these reforms, but it requires giving up power by the powerful to the powerless, and so perhaps they'll never occur. But I, and I want to argue that that's actually not uh, very often the case in history. We do see cases where uh, power gets distributed more even-handedly, and that's what we should be learning from. So let me start by talking about some of what I see of the pitfalls of avoiding the domestic state machinery. So one, one thing we've seen over the last few decades is that as just the total amount of foreign aid available has increased, there's also been a transition in the categories it's gone to. So in the middle of this graph, the, the many shades of blue, but the light blue shade of uh, blue that captures social uh, sector spending, you can see that it has increased across the time period. Um, you know, it has completely overwhelmed, for instance, the debt related category or even to a large extent the economic category. And this social sector spending would include, for, uh, for instance, you know, spending on health sector, on education, on cash transfers. It also is the one that I think is the most, um, it fits in best with this idea of value for money categorization. Now, as the social sector spending has increased, as there was greater interest in this idea that we know how to address poverty, we just need to get the money out there, there was this concern of who should deliver these resources. Uh, and this graph, which is, you know, unfortunately very much on the 45 degree line, tells us well, poor countries are also more corrupt. And so there, there's, there was a lot of concern that you may not want to go through a corrupt state where the money will just disappear into the Swiss bank accounts of the dictator who leads the country. And it led to interest instead in asking is how can we bypass the state and deliver directly? And we see many examples of this. So perhaps the most natural example we see is in humanitarian aid. Um, so you could argue that this is inevitable in the short run, that you know, very often when a crisis occurs, a state it doesn't exist well enough to provide the aid. But if you think of a country like Haiti, um, you know, at the time of the earthquake, just 1% of a very large budget went to, um, went to the government. 
But even two years later, this had only risen to 15 to 20 percent. And, you know, in eight circles, Haiti was very much described as the republic of the NGOs. More broadly, if you move away from humanitarian aid and look at the social aid altogether, according to the aid data, um, less than half of this aid was actually channeled through recipient states. A very common example uh, would be to say, let the donor decide on a particular uh, health program, for instance, eradicating uh, polio or um, uh, river worm. And then you oversee a vertical health program that targets that particular disease. And it certainly has success. You know, the eradication of polio in India was to a large extent a result of such a vertical program. But the problem happens is when aid disappears. And if countries get richer, aid will disappear. As the state bypass um, occurs, it's increasingly problematic, first, because you haven't built up the structure to, to increase tax resources in that country. So, I mean, here's another very well-known graph is that if we look across the world, um, and if you look at, say, high poverty, middle income countries, countries like Pakistan, India, Zambia, uh, Indonesia, their tax capacity looks very similar to low income countries, not middle income countries. So they have low state capacity and then aid disappears. One implication is that they end up with just a much smaller government. So I've always found this graph striking. So a typical way we measure government size is by the share of government spending as a share of GDP. And we know for rich countries, um, the period from 1960 to 1980 saw a significant rise and it's since then leveled at around 20% of GDP is spent by the government. But what's striking here is that when you break this up and also look at low income and high poverty middle income countries, what you see is that actually low income countries have a larger um, share of government spending. And this difference maps one to one with aid exits. And so what this is really picking up is the fact that aid exits as countries move to a high poverty uh, to, to middle income status, but they don't have the tax capacity to replace it. And as a result, in many of these countries, you know, health spending, for instance, uh, remains extremely low. In India right now, health spending is less than 2% of the GDP. And so, you, so I think one of the key pitfalls of avoiding the state is that if aid by design is defined as something that should leave when countries become richer, you want to leave, you leave, want to leave a country uh, equipped to function without aid and state bypass doesn't help there. So how far can we get by simply focusing then on improving the domestic state machinery by trying to get rid of the reasons for corruption? So Duflo in her 2017 LA lecture, they made a strong argument that implementation is an important part of uh, development policy. She said that good policies may not work because of poor implementation and economists should function more as plumbers and engage with the how to do things. But one example that I, that I often, or one way I often describe what this doesn't do is you can have the world's best plumbing system in place, but if people don't allow water into the system, the taps for the poor will always run dry, no matter whether or not there are leaks. And I think that highlights why we need to have, in addition to good plumbing, we need to have people in charge of the water systems who actually let water run through the pipes. Just to make this clear, I wanted to talk about an example of one piece of work that I did uh, with Esther and other co-authors. 
And this is perhaps one of the most important pieces of welfare machinery, at least in India, which is the National Rural Employment Guarantee Scheme. It guarantees India's rural households 100 days of work and costs, depending on the year, between 0.3 to 0.5% of the GDP. It's been one of the most important uh, forms of social protection since COVID-19 hit. It's implemented by local governments who then request funds from the state exchequer. And so in the status quo, what we see that the local government uh, would request advance payments. This is from a system when you needed to have money in cash upfront. They would then employ workers, pay the workers and ex post send up um, bills to uh, show that the money was spent as, as uh, requested. Now, because there was discretion in the local government in terms of how they spend the money, an elaborate system of checks and balances is usually put in place about who needs to approve the, approve the bills before funds are dispersed. Now, this is obviously a system that is open to abuse. You can imagine a holdup problem where at every stage, the, the higher-up authority refuses to clear the bills until they're given uh, some amount of resources. And so this is one of the areas where one might hope that the transparency that's allowed by digital uh, fund systems can help us have just-in-time financing so that rather than having to get the money up front, you give the work to the workers, you upload their, um, their details to, straight to the bank from the village, and the, the bank releases money into their bank accounts. This will reduce the number of personnel involved in approvals and create greater transparency. So together with a, with a set of uh, co-authors, which included at that point the Secretary of Rural Development in Bihar, we examined this experimentally in Bihar, a state, as I've argued, is a, an extremely important state when we think about anti-poverty policies. Uh, it increased transparency, it reduced the number of officials involved, and this graph perhaps best captures its impact. So what you see is the average daily spending on this program by each local government and what you see is that from the point of the intervention where the treatment areas, this was a randomized control treatment, the treatment areas moved to just-in-time financing, we see a significant decline in uh, funds going to them. That's the red line. And when the intervention ended at the end of the fiscal year, they both go back to being the same. And when we estimate the size of this effect, roughly um, 4.1 million US dollars less were spent in the state of Bihar in that fiscal year as a result of the intervention. Now, obviously the first concern you might have is that does this capture just a decline in work being made available? And we did a number of different uh, metrics to show that actually there was no change in work available. Rather, there was a reduction in the number of so-called ghost households, the kind of fake uh, work names that appear on worker roles who claim uh, payments. We also saw in the assets that elected officials have to um, have to uh, submit um, elected and, administ and administrative officials a 14% decline in the official wealth of the mean, uh, in the treatment relative to the control, which, which was roughly one third of the missing funds. So, so in terms of reducing leakage, this seems to have been a great um, reform. It's one that's since then um, been adopted quite broadly, but. What it did not do as a reform, it didn't worsen things for the poor in that it didn't reduce the work available, but it didn't increase the work either. So one way to think about it, there was more money available. Um, if, the, if the reform had been scaled up um, nationally, 
It had the potential of saving over $900 million. That $900 million could have been used to expand the program to reach more poor people, to give more poor people uh, more days of work. Instead, the central government saw this as a great way of reducing its fiscal deficit. And so the reductions in leakage were greatly appreciated by the central exchequer that ultimately bears the cost of the program. But both because they didn't share the, the partisan identity of the local government, uh, partisan identity of the state government, but also perhaps because um, the, the citizens didn't know that there was suddenly this available, money available and so they couldn't push for how it was used. This, be this became to a large extent a way of reducing fiscal deficits rather than expanding anti-poverty programs. And I think this is to me a classic example of both the benefits of plumbing reforms and where they stop. So what more do we need and why do we need more than plumbing reforms or uh, you know, cash transfer programs that can effectively provide $1.90 a day with hopefully less leakage? I think we need more because poverty is more than that. Escaping poverty is a lot more than just a daily transfer of $1.90 a day or a road to the city. Escaping poverty sustainably, it requires physical safety. You want to be able to migrate and work without fear of violence. You want to be able to have the financial wherewithal to save the money that you earn and access it when you need. You want access to services so that your children can get the education that will break the intergenerational trap of poverty. You want there to be effective regulations so that people are not cheated. They're protected from the costs of dirty growth. And ultimately we want basic rights. We want historically disadvantaged groups that unless they face an equal playing field, they will just not be enter, able to enter the labor market. A lot of this requires more than $1.90 a day. It requires institutions that ensure that those who control resources, which is very often the state, respond to the needs of the poor. And today, when we look at the experience of being poor, I talked earlier about how poverty is clustered. If you look at those characteristics of what predicts poverty, I'd argue they, were, they tend to reflect institutional poverty. So for instance, uh, we see physical isolation. 80% of the world's extreme poor live in rural areas where they have less access to government agencies, they have less reliable services. Um, I think one in eight in urban areas in the developing world lives in slums. These are largely poor households. They lack property rights and therefore they lack the ability to negotiate and demand uh, improvements to services from government agencies. They tend to largely be most own account workers. They're exposed to more risk. They lack job stability and employment-based social protection. And finally, very often, they come from socially disadvantaged groups, which limits their access to informal insurance, to employment networks. They're much more likely to face regressive norms. All of these capture institutional constraints, not just economic constraints. And so if you want to really address um, these central issues in development, we need to address these institutional constraints. And that requires recognizing that very often what the poor face are weak formal institutions and one-sided political and social structures that concentrate the economic and political power in the hands of the few. Aid, if it bypasses the state, or philanthropy, if it bypasses the state, it may be able to reach the poor when it comes to giving them a dollar ninety. Uh, you can send cash transfers by mobile phone, but it's not going to build state capacity and state accountability. 
Plumbing reforms, I think, will achieve a lot. I think they're incredibly important, but they will not change the institutionally determined balance of power very often. And so that's what brings me to where I think we want to go, at least some of us should go, is to think about democratic reforms. Let me start about just reminding us why we should focus on the democratic state. The poor increasingly live in democratic states. So what this graph shows you is it uses data from the Varieties Democracy uh, database to see the evolution of where the world's poor live. Um, so you can think of two cuts. So think about um, a clean election, which is very often the focus of, I'd say, governance aid is, you know, have free and fair elections, send independent monitors. So you can think of China zero on that. Vietnam is roughly 0.5. And the second, which I think is a often less noted, but important aspect of democracy, especially when we think about institutional poverty, is its egalitarian component. You know, do they support civil liberties? Do they support universalistic uh, welfare? Here, for instance, Vietnam is scores relatively high at 0.7. And so if you look at where the world's poor live, over time, increasingly they live in democracies. Many of these democracies, um, which go up to the light orange line, have... Uh, clean elections, but very few of these democracies are egalitarian. So the dark orange line is to have a clean election index that places you above Vietnam and an egalitarian co component index that also places you above Vietnam and it's very, very few of the world's poor live there. So we've succeeded perhaps in getting people elections, but not in getting them elections that lead to governments that uh, bring them progressive redistribution. And this despite the fact that you know, unlike something like corruption or state capacity, there really is no trend line between GDP and the interest of um, a country's population in politics with income. I think the poor in low-income countries are as invested in democracy as, say, many are in a country like the United States. And so I think, you know, there are really multiple advantages for why the reforms we want to think about should come through the democratic state. This is where the poor now live. This is what they are invested in. And so as a result, the democratic state has the legitimacy to raise and allocate resources. It can be quite flexible. Many of the reforms that we have seen that have worked well have come from um, decentralized democratic states. And then finally, size, especially once you come to high poverty, middle income countries, domestic state revenues well dominate aid flows. And so uh, democracy fits well done is going to ensure significantly higher spending on social protection than we'll ever get by uh, reforming aid budgets. So how, so how should we go about this? Let me turn now to what I see as some of the advances in the literature on how we can design reforms around these ideas of power, politics, and norms. I think before doing that, it's worth asking, you know, why is it that democracy doesn't work for the poor very often? Why is it that just we've seen clean elections are on the rise? Why isn't this enough to gain access to a fair share of the proceeds? I think there are multiple reasons, and these are the reasons that institutional reforms, democratic reforms, need to respond to. The poor are very often de facto disenfranchised. They may, on paper, have the vote, but they don't actually know what paperwork needs to be completed to get registered. They lack identification. They don't know how to find their polling booth. They can't understand very complicated ballot papers. 
they're often less informed about what politicians do. They're not part of those networks where they learn what politicians do. They're less able to hold them electorally accountable. They're also less likely very often to be represented by one of their own. And if they're less likely to be represented by one of their own, a corollary of it is that politicians themselves often don't know what the poor want, need, and they're often relatively um, unaware of implementation issues that would occur. So this is how I think about where the focus of development policy has been and where it should be. So, you know, we often, when we think about plumbing reforms, we're thinking about the right-hand side of this quadrant. So we're thinking about how, do, how can politicians hold bureaucrats more responsible for the goals that the politician as a principal has? Or how can a high-level bureaucrat make sure that a frontline worker internalizes their goals to ensure that teachers are in school or health workers turn up at the primary health clinic? And as I said, there have been incredibly important uh, plumbing reforms that have told us how we can better align incentives within the bureaucracy or within the bureaucracy and politicians. But what we've seen less of is um, a recognition that political reforms, reforms that help us think about how can citizens actually select politicians, understand what they're doing, how can groups of citizens coordinate, that these are also important parts of designing anti-poverty policies. Um, improving de democracy or democratic reforms do doesn't stand outside where, what development policy needs to do. I think reforms to, uh, to address institutional poverty need to also ask how democratic institutions can be designed to accurately reflect citizens' preferences, provide them the ability to hold politicians accountable and represent um, those who are disadvantaged by informal power structures. And I think this is, to me, one of the most exciting uh, developments that we are seeing right now is a growing body of work that helps us use understand this using very often the same tools that created, you know, a vibrant literature in anti-poverty um, program evaluation, uh, policy program evaluations. So let me turn to just a few examples, and I'll really just be um, scratching the surface here to give you a sense of how we can learn from these reforms. So the first set of reforms, um, think about, you know, enfranchisement, recognizing the fact that de jure uh, voting rights does not imply de facto um, enfranchisement. So how can we grease the wheels of democracy? And, you know, I, I should say going ahead through this, much of the exciting work that's going on in this area is uh, coming from faculty at LSE right now. So uh, Mike Allen, with a co-author in his early, I think, thesis work, um, showed how you can actually try to reduce fraud that occurs at the stages of aggregation by simply better documentation. So taking photographs at polling booth stations of what the, what the vote shares of different parties look like at the polling booth level is enough to change the extent of aggregation fraud that uh, at large aggregation centers would occur. And importantly, what this showed is that, that reducing such fraud increase the vote share of less connected candidates, those who arguably would re be representing the less powerful. Yusuf Negus, another thing about it, all three of these papers are, were from people who uh, did this as part of the PhD. Uh, Yusuf Negus exploited a national experiment in the Indian state of Bihar, 
where the government randomized uh, the formation of polling station officers. And he showed that when you had at least one member of an ethnic minority, uh, a Muslim in these teams, then the vote share of the party representing these minorities went up by enough to actually change electoral outcomes. And he has very uh, strong suggestive evidence that some of this is because um, having an officer of your group is more likely to be willing to accept um, different forms of identification and allow you to actually cast your vote. Uh, Fujiwara uh, looked in Brazil and looked at the introduction of electronic voting. And I think here's a good example of a case that sometimes that's something that may start as a plumbing reform. So electronic voting was introduced to reduce the time cost of vote counting, found that it actually had the surprising side effect of actually making it easier for uh, poorer households to vote. Uh, let me walk through actually the set of effects he finds because I think that's an important way of showing um, how democratic reforms can actually be anti can actually improve welfare. So in Brazil, as you switched from paper to electronic voting, there was an increase of 10 percentage points of valid votes, an increase of three percentage points of state budget redirected to healthcare, which came largely from a rise in left-wing legislators getting elected uh, when the poor cast more vote. And importantly, what you see is um, you see uh, gains in terms of women uh, completing antenatal care and a reduction in the number of uneducated mothers with uh, low birth weight newborns. And I think what this tells us is that it's not that easy to, uh, if you want, create best buys where you say, I care about um, you know, uh, birth weight of children and so Maybe in order to affect the birth of the children, you have to go all the way up to actually asking what is going to enfranchise the mothers of those children. A second strand of work and one that where I and others have uh, made contributions is to really look at transparency gains. Now, we have, there's older literature that told us that as you inform citizens about what politicians do, you can actually... Um, chain selection. So informed citizens will choose politicians who do more like that, uh, more things that, uh, they, that uh, are preferred by them. But importantly, I think recent work that I've done that others have done suggests that actually politicians knowing that there is more transparency in the system also has an incentive effect. So we found that um, local politicians in Delhi were more likely to move their spending priorities to match those of slum dwellers when they knew two years before the election that the slum dwellers are going to get information on how they perform just before the election. And importantly, what we find is that this is also internalized by political parties. So political parties who had to choose between um, which male uh, politicians to give tickets to because gender quotas reduced how many men could stand chose to give it to those who perform better according to this metric. We also find evidence that, you know, creating ways for the poor to engage, I think uh, helps build state capacity. So John Weigel, again, who's at LSE, has some fantastic work showing how if you combine the property tax campaign uh, with giving citizens opportunities to um, speak to government officials on how this money should be spent, then what you find is that the treated citizens positively update and there is, there is increased appreciation and trust of the government. And arguably this is what's needed in order to ensure that you don't uh, have short-term reforms uh, devolve into less and less over time. 
And then finally, you know, this is going back to something that I actually worked on when I was doing my PhD at LSE. Sometimes you do need a little bit more of a heavy hand. You have to recognize there are features of representative democracy that are always going to go against um, those who are a minority. And so um, in my thesis work, I showed that if you took scheduled castes and scheduled tribes and had quotas in place for them at elections, this actually increased transfers towards them. Subsequently, uh, Chin and Prakash showed that for the group of scheduled tribes, these quotas also lowered poverty. And recently, there's very nice work by Saad Gulzar and some of his co-authors showing that when you think about sort of social welfare programs like, like the Employment Guarantee Scheme, these quotas actually matter in terms of tribals getting access to the program. And importantly, to the extent that you know, the share of resources is fixed, these benefits come at the cost of the relatively privileged, not other disadvantaged groups. And then finally, um, you know, gender quotas is something that many of you may have heard about, especially uh, given Esther's early work on this. But I think it's important to remember that the downstream effects of quotas, gender quotas went beyond just uh, moving some spending towards women's preferences, because there, again, you may worry it's a, it's a zero-sum game. But importantly, it actually changes levels of bias. It makes the voters more willing to elect women in the future. It raises aspirations. And again, there's recent nice work by graduate student uh, Tanushri Goyals showing that female candidates are actually more likely to recruit uh, women party workers and have better gender balance in their campaigns. And this actually changes political engagement, which arguably is really what in the long run is going to matter. So, you know, I think I want to move towards the conclusion by really now turning explicitly to what I think many people feel is the Achilles heel in thinking of such reforms, which is why would they ever get implemented? And so I think of the catch-22 of democratic reform as really being, well, when the poor lack power, who's going to have the incentives to provide them influence? And I think we can learn some from history and we can learn some um, by, again, by evaluations. So if you think about who actually can change, I think the three sets of players we want to think about, obviously the poor and disadvantaged. Then we want to think about the domestic, economic and political elite who may have the power to affect change. And then finally the international development actors who we spent quite a lot of time thinking about at the start of the talk. So there's a nice paper by Lizeri and Persico uh, looking at the expansion of the suffrage in the UK. I mean, it still only went as far as men, but at least went from wealthy landowners to all men. So it thinks about some of the issues that Arthur Lewis thought about. And what they argued that it was a set of politicians who argued that extending the franchise was essential to reduce the pervasiveness of patronage and to coax the machinery of the government to serve the public purpose. And at this point in time, the public purpose that they saw as important was actually um, citizens' health. This was a period where there was increasing recognition that diseases such as cholera could be responded to by public health investments. In order to make those public health investments, you needed the money, uh, which would not come if a small set of people were simply providing patronage to each other. And this, um, among other reasons, public health considerations were an important reason for why these insiders chose to form league with the poor. External actors can play a role. I think it's, it's, it's important to recognize it's not just about resources, it's sometimes about agenda setting. 
Um, I think gender quotas are a good example. The United Nations 1995 Beijing Conference set the agenda of gender quotas, put the number of a third out there. And very often, it's actually when the UN has entered um, as supporting the stage of constitutional rewriting after internal conflict is when gender quotas got put into place. And I find, you know, very often the poor citizens do coordinate. And I think it's important for us to think of institutions that will help such coordination. Um, we, the one I want to focus on here is really thinking also about political parties. So the first piece of evidence comes from looking at the history of revolutions. Um, what you see is that most revolutions fail, but some succeed. Those that move into democracy typically are very successful. And the suggestive evidence that an important reason for this is rebel groups entering as parties. And so here is some direct evidence on the role of political parties. So, you know, going beyond the institution, there were thinking citizens to politicians for recognizing this is mediated by parties. Kate Casey, um, you know, in an amazing piece of work, managed to persuade the main parties in Sierra Leone to experiment with the introduction of primaries. And she found that introducing primaries rather than just having the honchos in the party choose uh, candidates led to better, uh, led to candidates who better represent um, citizens. So in work that I've done with Mike Allen and others, we find that, you know, post the revolution in Nepal, it was really the entry of the rebel group of Maoists into mainstream politics that played an important role in creating a cadre of educated lower caste leaders. And it, not just is it enough to have parties, it's also you want to have healthy competition among them. So Berlin and Ehrlich, for instance, noticed that in, in Mexico, the fact that um, political competition by creating uncertainty over future political control provided these Mexican uh, political parties incentives to undertake transparency reforms as, a, as an insurance mechanism so that when they're out of party, they can still know what's going on. And so very often, I think to support democracy, it's these supporting institutions or political parties um, that are going to help coordinate citizen actions. So let me just conclude with a couple of thoughts on how I think we can leverage politics and power in favor of the poor. So let me start with aid. I think when we think about aid, there's, there's a lot one can do by identifying uh, anti-poverty programs, the importance of cash transfers or discussing how we should be um, investing in uh, health, uh, health sector. But at the same time, I think it's important to also expand, especially in low-income and fragile states, expand the ambit of the social sector and governance aid to also build and reinforce effective institutions that will continue this job after aid leaves. Right now, a lot of governance aid really stops at uh, clean elections. So there's a lot of, for instance, USAID funding that will go for independent monitoring or to make sure that there isn't fraud in the elections. But it doesn't think about implementation. It doesn't think about democracy that happens between the two rounds of the election cycle. And I think, if anything, one message I hope um, this talk has is to say we need much closer links between thinking about who has power and how do they implement policies. Right now, these sometimes sit in slightly different uh, parts of the wheelhouse. And then in kind of richer countries, aid is a very small amount of what's coming in. But what can be used for, it can be used to catalyze focused improvements in state capacity and democratic accountability. 
I talked about India's uh, workfare program, which is a huge program with a budget uh, larger than most aid budgets, to, all aid budgets to India. But what aid budgets can do is provide evidence on which improvements to, say, the governance structure could actually work to strengthen um, what the poor receive. And, in, and finally, I think another reason for thinking about such reforms is that right now, as we see increasing backlash, uh, often in rich countries, to sending money abroad, these concerns of why should we have um, you know, cash transfers being paid for by aid resources when the country is sending um, satellites up. It may be much more important and palatable and sustainable to invest in state capacity and state accountability initiatives. And then the second, I think, message I want to leave about, I think it's important as we're thinking about designing reforms and evaluating reform to also evaluate institutions that help create these coalitions for change. I talked some about political parties, but I think more broadly, you want to identify the incentives of those with power or money. And I recognize, ask, you know, what kind of reforms will help create an awareness of shared policy interests across lines of state, class, and social identity? You know, the, mostly what we're living through right now isn't great, but, you know, what they do have is the potential for creating such, uh, such coalitions. So thinking about global pandemics and climate breakdowns, how this creates um, the potential uh, for such coalitions. And finally, I think this also highlights, at least to me, a reason why we can't think that aid or, you know, or support should be something done at the level of individuals. Governments, either domestic or through bilateral or multilateral collaborations, are often going to be better placed to lead on governance and democratic reforms than single individual donors, who will often get demonized by political actors who choose to lose out from governance reforms. And so I think, you know, while we may see, which we are seeing right now, a rise of private philanthropy, it's important that we recognize that there is a place for state-to-state -state interaction in designing um, and implementing the redist intentional redistribution of resources. So thank you very much. Uh, as I said, sort of, you know, LSE is a place where I first started thinking about many of these ideas, and so it's, it's great for me to have an opportunity to be back and to hear and talk about it. Let me stop share and hand over to Noel. Well, let me, let me be, you know, the, the representative of the audience to clap for you. Um, I, hope, I hope that that conveys um, everybody's uh, appreciation for an amazing talk. So thank you so much. Um, we do have a, a long list of questions. Um, you know, one, one question I, I'm going to ask, and, and I think other people have some similar ideas. I, I'll, I'll ask it in my own particular way, which is, um, you know, to some extent, you know, you, you look at these democracies that, that aren't uh, sort of alleviating poverty successfully, aren't transferring to the poor, and, and there are kind of two, two different approaches that one could take. One is that democracy isn't working very well. Um, and, and there are specifically sort of democratic reforms that need to be enacted. Another is that the democracy is working well at some, you know, the, the way democracy is intended to work, which is, you know, at, at some, you know, very abstract level, the will of, of the majority plus one. Um, and, and, you know, that, that suggests sort of a different set of, of policy responses that I think, you know, are, are potentially complementary, potentially substitutes, 
potentially working in in different settings and and those are more like constitutional protections i would say so whereas whereas you know the the former set of issues would be to say you know the the poor are being effectively disenfranchised another would be to say like no the poor have the franchise but they're part of a minority group that isn't part of the the sort of winning coalition um and this is the will of the democracy what we need is sort of a constitutional protection or something like that do you have a sense of you know when when you look at these countries that that are you know in the 0.5 to 0.7 range um in in their democratic institutions you know do you do you see countries that have kind of badly functioning democracies for the most part or countries where the democracy part you know is is mechanically working but there needs to be constitutional protection of of of, of a powerless sort of group what what's your sense or is it both I mean and I think I mean you're right to say that I think you know democracy has a majoritarian flavor to it very often and so the moment any disadvantaged group becomes a minority group democracy may stop working for it the thing to remember is that it's not the, the it's not so clear cut what how you will cut that line you know I think we've seen that again and again it's not clear you can cut it on class you can cut it on social group you know with the rise of social media and populism you cut it on many different things to get that group so all that to say yes we need institutional protections we need institution and i think that's why i was talking about quotas as well but in in some ways i think we cannot predict what is going to be that alliance that's going to remain important uh 10 years from now so we also and so constitutional protections especially if they're group based i don't think we can define those groups well enough to stick them on forever and so perhaps what we need a lot more is institutions um that support democracy sometimes from the outside and that could be you know either an ability for parties to form in um you know unsticky ways or it could be media to be able to access it could be focusing a lot more on maybe basic human rights that we think are important go beyond group identity um but so i completely agree with you but i just also think that um you know we have to be flexible in how we respond because those the other side is just going to constantly pull the rug under you on what they use to define groups by okay so now let me let me next thank you thank you that super super yeah i i i agree i i agree um to let me combine two questions um in a sense and i i may paraphrase slightly so one from um Hunter Hunter Rinoro Holifeno an LSE undergrad from Madagascar um who who discusses sort of the the lack of interest that the powerful authorities sometimes have um in uh in sharing power um and and sort of the need for external incentives perhaps um to to you know to convince them um and then uh another question that I saw earlier Marco Luisi an MA student at Shanghai University um talks about um the role of China um as as an international player um that that may be providing incentives for for some of these intermediate types of political regimes not necessarily working in the direction we want so do you do you have uh you know uh, any any thoughts on sort of how our in quotes meaning sort of western levers um to to shape political institutions and you know sort of might might look especially in a world where china's becoming increasingly active 
So, you know, it's an interesting thing when you uh, think about an organization like the World Bank. For the longest time, the bank said, we want to reduce poverty. We don't want to deal with domestic politics. That was very much the party line, I'd say, even until like five or 10 years ago. And I think, I think the recognition that the bank has come to right now is that you can't keep those two separate. Now, obviously, it's a, it's a fine line in that there is national sovereignty. There is, an, you know, there is, you, you can't enter and ask for uh, countries to implement, uh, say, certain reforms that citizens of that country don't want. But I, I certainly think perhaps one thing that the rise of China is going to force a lot of international organizations to do is to recognize is that you cannot keep separate uh, development goals from governance goals. Now, I think the trickier issue is how do we actually implement this in a way that is cognizant of um, national so- sovereignty and you know the, the, the rights of citizens within their countries. I think that's a tricky question, but I think it's no trickier than kind of doing development policy after decades of colonialism. Um, you know, I think, that, I think that's, a, that's a discomfort that we have to live with when we do development policy. It's not made worse by thinking explicitly about governance issues rather than, say, thinking about export tariffs. Thank you. Um, a, a development practitioner, Sandhya Bala, uh, asks, well, first compliments, wonderful talk. Um, should pass that along. Always nice to hear. Um, uh, what what can we do to drive international aid and philanthropy to focus on strengthening national institutions rather than pushing direct interventions that can subvert the state machinery? Um, so do you, do you have a, a sense of of what what types of, you know, policies and, and sort of programmatic measures might do a better job to, to support the state rather than acting as a substitute? You know, let me, let me pose back a question that I think I've once heard from um, this group that I, you know, in general, undergraduates join a lot, at least in the U.S., is the Effective Altruism Group. And that's a group that, you know, is a set of uh, young individuals who want to do good and, you know, often want to kind of also be effective in how they do good. And it's interesting because I don't think they would mind working through the state if you could convince them that was effective, but they have no access to the state. Um, and I think that's, that's, that's an important reason for me to kind of push for groups like, you know, it could be the FCDO, it could be USAID, it could be uh, government organizations to start trying to think about how do they create ways for uh, citizens who care about development to actually engage with their own government's uh, state activity, because it's not like people will not, I mean, they will then go to NGOs, they will send shoes to Africa if they don't see a way of actually engaging with it. So I think it's, to me, it's a little bit for multilateral and bilateral organizations to take heart of the fact of saying we have evidence, we know how to do it, there's resources out there, how do we engage? I mean, right now the COVID response is an interesting, you know, point for that. There is, uh, you know, there is coordination going on. There's also, I think, you know, individuals who would want to who would want to help, and how 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 do even um, international cooperations like Covax or Gavi or others create a role for uh, engagement with citizens? I think I think that's something that I would hope bilaterals and multilaterals are more willing to think about. Otherwise, you know, given the demand that people have of wanting to do good, they will go to accessible NGOs. Thank you. Um, uh, 
let's see where what should i do next um i i think this is a nice one that that's quite timely i mean it might it might be so timely i'm not sure you you've had enough time to to sort of think through all the implications but but um you know there, there's a question relating to to the 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 seeming cuts um that we can anticipate in in international aid budget so um, Patty uh, Sianga Knudsen, a development economist in Zambia and an LSE alumnus, asks, how can recipient countries reset their thinking about the aid agenda pri their aid agenda priorities since future cooperation uh, flows will have much less money, indications from the UK, et cetera, um, and, and that may move more toward trade and technical transfers? Um, you know, how can we explore fees, other feasible flows? Or should we think about other funding sources like diaspora remittances? Um, how or have, have you had, had a chance to sort of think about how sort of an environment with smaller international aid budgets sort of fits? I mean, I can imagine um, a version where you say, OK, you know, this makes sort of getting the local politics right even more important. Um, but but that, that's my, my first instinct sort of as a political economist. It, it heightens sort of the need to think this way. Um, but yeah, what, what are your thoughts? I have two very different thoughts. So one I think is the well-behaved thought, which is uh, in line with what you're saying. I think, you know, you can have views that you should think of, um, you know, more strategic spending. You know, where If you have less money, where, where, is, where are the points of leverage? Is for a country the point of leverage education is it health you know you know so i think maybe this focuses one better on it but then you know really kind of push on that so that's the well-behaved thought the less well-behaved thought is you know uh, maybe we need to change narratives a bit you know where did i mean the where did the uh, a lot of the arguments for you know aid came in an era of the end of colonialism i think there's a lot of discussion right now about you know decolonization and what that means and maybe if you want to think of this world of power the argument isn't that, you know, it's poor people who have no past who are being helped. It's, it's very, very much a recognition of the fact that, you know, we're talking about a system where power structures have actually got us here. And, you know, one thing we've learned is actually printing money is easier than we thought it was. So it's not actually obvious that uh, cutting aid budgets is such an obvious thing. And maybe that's what we'll go, but maybe there's also a point to put out that narrative, the opposite narrative to say that a lot of these cuts look just very irrational and quite populist. Thanks. A um, couple more questions. So um, one, one question um, that I, I think relates to, to an element that you didn't touch on uh, much in the talk, but I, I'm sure you've thought about this. So um, Avni Parathan, uh, who's from the University of Virginia, an undergraduate, um, asks, considering that certain economies with high inequality like India um, have such a large informal work sector, how does that impact the implementation aspect of anti-poverty policies? Um, so so is, there, is there sort of an, an interaction of like sort of weak states a large informal economy um, and and some of these programs uh, that that you have in mind to to sort of strengthen the the bargaining power and po power in general of the poor. That's a great question, I think, and that points again a lot more to why we need to think about institutions. That again, you know, um, unless we have effective and relatively strong regulations that protect worker rights, you know cash transfers are not going to provide the response. I think we saw that already in something like. In India, after COVID-19, the huge 
internal migration flows largely reflect to the fact that most urban migrants are completely unprotected and in the informal sector. Um, so, you know, that again, I think brings out this idea that reforming these institutions is part and parcel of addressing poverty and does not stand separate from it. So uh, a question from uh, Nick Manson, an, a, a PhD, but non-economist, an independent citizen. Um, we all want to be an independent citizen. Um, given that many of the indices you present are also increasingly relevant in wealthy countries, corruption, inequality, debt. Is, is, so I, this is a very strong and provocative way of asking the question, but, but um, I think you'll see the point. Is there any point anymore of drawing a distinction between wealthy and less wealthy countries witness the assault on democratic institutions in the U.S. and Britain? So I, do, do you see some parallels between sort of structural inequality, structural racism in, in you know, the U.S. in particular, um, but that you also see in other New World countries and, and elsewhere and, and sort of what, what you see in democracies that leave behind their very poor um, in the developing world, you know, perhaps at, at, at a, a higher level of poverty or a low, lower level of income? I mean, certainly I agree. I think that, there, you know, I think, um, you know, a lot of these descriptions, especially post-COVID, that we might end up in a world of K-shaped recovery is going to be as true in rich countries as poor countries. I mean, that's, I think, one fact that we should not forget. And you know, this is something when I used to teach with Danny Roderick, he used to always start our, uh, our lecture series with is, you know, would you rather be born poor in a rich country or rich in a poor country? And people very often would think, oh, I'd rather be rich in a poor country with these ideas of driving around in, you know, fancy cars um, at the top of dictatorship. But that's like the 0.001%. The moment you define rich and poor to even say be 1% of the population, you'd much rather be poor in a rich country. And so, you know, though, while yes, inequality has risen that you have to be very, very rich in a poor country to make up for everything you lose out on. Um, and then a, a question um, from uh, another uh, LSE alumnus, uh, Daman Karseti, if, if I'm pronouncing the name correctly, sorry if not, um, LSE alumnus from India um, asks, would you agree that rising digitization um, is a double-edged sword uh, to ensure more inclusive and democratic institutional functioning. So you definitely gave us Mike Callan's example um, where um, some new digital technologies and Thomas Fujiwara's as well, where, where these things seem to have helped. Um, do, you, do you see sort of downsides as well? Yeah, I mean, I think one of the biggest downsides is the poor are just less likely to be um, you know, digitally equipped. I think, you know, I think one fact I always remind people of is India has, for instance, right now the largest presence on Facebook as a country it also has the largest gender gap in Facebook. And so, you know, uh, you know, I think, uh, you know, Jean Dres has done a lot of work kind of point and his group have done a lot of work pointing out is how biometrics, you know, leave out some as well. So yes, I mean, certainly the last mile becomes even harder very often to reach in a digital economy than in a non-digital economy. All right. Well, thanks so much, Rohini. Um, and, and thanks to everyone for the questions. Um, we, we have many more questions. I'm sorry we didn't get to all of them. Uh, many people have asked whether um, they'll be able to access this material following the talk. Um, I think there will be 
um, this podcast, again, assuming that we didn't make any technical mistakes. Um, so all of you can can listen again, um, go back and look at all the, the great exhibits that Rohini presented. Um, but for now, um, it, it's time for me to, to close the event um, as much as I wish it could go longer. Um, so it's been a, a, a great pleasure, um, I'm sure for all of you, certainly for me uh, to hear Rohini's talk. Um, so many more great conversations um, to have and, and so much great research to come out of this agenda. Um, thank you for laying it out for us. Um, thank you so much. Thank you for the invitation. Thank you, Rohini.